Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada's Justice Minister has introduced legislation to toughen up laws around the country's bail system. The Minister, David Lametti, will join us on the program to talk about that. According to Ipsos polling, 62% of Canadians are expecting to need charitable services in the next six months. That's due to the high cost of living, of course. Can charities really keep up with the demand? And the Liberals and Conservatives have united to defend the French language against a federal bill. What could it actually do exactly? What are the ramifications? Well, we're going to delve into that as well. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. New legislation introduced yesterday in Ottawa. Uh, it's all about bail reform, something we've talked about extensively on the program in the last couple of months. And uh, it received immediate reaction. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev says the legislation the Liberals introduced in Parliament uh, will do nothing, those are his words, uh, to deal with violent repeat offenders. Here's what Mr. Polyev had to say. They're telling him to end the catch and release criminal justice system that is putting their lives at risk. Police officers have lost their lives because Justin Trudeau has turned loose repeat violent criminals who have killed them. There are little kids whose moms and dads don't come home because of Trudeau's catch and release policies. Uh, that is Pierre Polyev with his comments about the, uh, the proposed legislation. Uh, our next guest, I think, would probably have a contrary opinion. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure that he does. He is uh, David Labetti, the Justice Minister and Attorney General for the uh, Government of Canada. Uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Minister, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us on a very busy day today. Uh, good morning. It's my pleasure to be with you. You've heard the uh, the criticisms from Mr. Polyev and from others about uh, about people that have been out on bail committing heinous crimes, uh, and and obviously there was a, a hue and cry for this kind of revamp uh, legislation right now. Talk to us about uh, I think one of the key elements of this is the reverse onus bail conditions. Yeah, I, thank you. Uh, thanks for this opportunity. I I would just say no one's going to ever confuse my approach to criminal justice uh, with with Mr. Polyev, but I would also point out that that uh, the 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 Attorney General for Ontario ha has come out favorably yesterday with respect to this legislation, as has the Association of Canadian Police Chiefs, Toronto Police Chiefs, and others. Uh, we've worked closely with the provinces and the policing community to come up with this package, and and we think. It threads a number of very important needles, but as you mentioned, we've we have a, a new reverse onus um, for uh, repeat violent offenders involving weapons. That's what uh, the in particular the provincial ministers of justice were asking for. It includes so it includes guns, but it also includes uh, knives and 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 bear spray. Um, We've also expanded the list of offenses that already had a reverse onus. Uh, so these are firearms offenses. That's precisely what the provincial premiers had asked Prime Minister Trudeau to do last January. We've also strengthened the uh, the reverse onus regime with respect to intimate partner violence. And we're asking for a judge or a justice of the peace to show evidence that they have considered in making their bail determination the, the question of community safety, uh, so safety and security of the community in, in question, and uh, whether or not the accused's general history of violence has any had had any bearing in in making the bail decision so we're trying to structure the discretion that we've given to justices and uh, uh, to judges and justices of the peace and we think this is a great step forward as as uh, you know minister downey uh, tweeted yesterday the, uh, this is a delicate balance. I, I fully understand that. And, and given Mr. Polyev's comments, but of course, he was part of a previous government that had to, to use their phrase, get tough on crime. 
uh, and to do some pretty, well, some people find draconian legislation to do that, most of it, which, by the way, has been tossed out by the Supreme Court. That's How do you find that balance, though, Minister? I mean, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms says that anybody who is charged with a crime will not be denied reasonable bail without just cause. That, that's enshrined in the Charter. And at the same time, you're trying to close up some loopholes here. Well, that's look. I I am never, excuse me, going to uh, try to advance any piece of legislation that I think is against the charter. We think we have threaded that needle by remaining targeted. You know what we heard again and again from police uh, across Canada, as well as uh, as well as provincial ministers of justice, public safety ministers, was that it was a small number of offenders, repeat violent offenders who uh, ought to be the focus of the legislation. That's what we've done. Um, we we really do believe that in targeting uh, specific provisions, specific offenses, we still remain within the general uh, the general parameters of the charter and and we think we've done that. the uh, the concern expressed by some people was uh, that previously, not not this legislation that you're talking about now, Minister, but previously, uh, there might have been too much leeway and some judges may have gone too far uh, in, in in granting bail to, to those that, that probably were not worthy of it, according to some people's minds anyway. I, I know that a lot of this is hindsight, of course, because of some of the crimes that, that have been committed by uh, people that were out on bail. Uh, but do you feel as if you have to, to tighten those guardrails then for, for people at the discretion that judges can and cannot use? Well, we don't want to fetter judges' discretion. Uh, what we're doing here is channeling it. So, so ultimately, a judge or justice of the peace still has discretion. Ultimately, a crown still has an, an obligation to, to put evidence forward, as as do defense attorneys. Um, we have we have structured that discretion in in these uh, in these particular examples. We're also sending out a message that you know serious crime deserves serious consequences. Um, and and I think that's been consistent. Uh, we're also sending out a message that we, you know, consistent with Bill C-75, which we haven't changed, consistent with the Supreme Court decisions that that bill actually enshrined in, in legislation, um, it is still a right to get bail. And, uh, and it, it isn't... Um, it isn't to happen when a person presents a threat to public safety. Uh, what we're doing in these in these in these few examples is changing the onus um, in order for the person to show that they're not a threat to public safety. The other element to this, I guess, too, Minister, is uh, is I, I don't want to just look at this bill in in, in isolation. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of important stuff here that has to be discussed and debated. But uh, you know the the history, you know the background. There's been in many people's minds an increase in violent crime here in Toronto's transit system. A number of incidents there, uh, the, the murders of OPP officers uh, here in Southern Ontario, a couple of them in the last little while. Uh, but this piece of legislation itself is not going to solve the problem, is it? I mean, you know, some people are saying we need more police. Some people say deny bail to more and more people. But uh, is, is there more to this right now to look at the overall picture here to try to resolve the, uh, I think, the, the concern many people have here for public safety? Oh, very much so. I mean, this is one small piece, and this is the piece that the federal government can do. The other thing the federal government can do is what my minister, what my colleague Minister Marco Mendicino uh, announced last week, which was more funding for guns and the guns and gangs programs. He's also announced increased funding for the the uh, the community safety program, and and both of those uh, both of those programs work with provinces and territories, and they're both very popular with provinces and territories. The administration of bail, uh, the administration of bail is is critically important. That falls to the provinces. You've seen recently measures in Ontario in British Columbia, in Manitoba, uh, trying to 
make that system more effective and more efficient. Uh, we we all have a responsibility to work together on this. It's complex. It's working on mental health um, mental health supports. I know my my colleague Minister uh, Carolyn Bennett is working with the provinces and territories in that regard. It's about housing. Uh, these are all interrelated, and it's going to take a whole of government approach from multiple levels of government in order to in order to to really solve this. I, I know that when we've talked about, for instance, a, a number of different aspects of the justice system, and and we do know that prison populations there's a, a in many people's minds an overrepresentation of indigenous and people of color in that uh, in that population. Uh, do those statistics weigh in on a judge's decision to grant bail or not? In other words, if somebody who is a, a charged in, in a situation like this, uh, if they are a member of one of those minority groups right now, do, do they get a preferential treatment? Do they treat like like everybody else? Is, are, are the judges supposed to be colorblind here, or should they be aware of, of those statistics? Well, I think uh, I think the notion of being colorblind is is you know has long been disproven. I think we we have asked through the Gladu because of the Gladu case of the Supreme Court of Canada, we have mm -hmm. asked judges at every stage, whether it's sentencing, whether it's bail, to take to take a person's indigeneity into account. Uh, so that's one one particular example, but it 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 is meant to be taken into account. But where the person represents a threat to society, it's not supposed to trump that. And and I think we're sending out a clear message here that particularly in these kinds of cases where we have reversed the onus uh, on bail, uh, that that we need to take that the pub the security of the public safety of the public very seriously. Uh, so, and, and as we mentioned, this is part of a greater package right now. Uh, do you anticipate support uh, from the other? Uh, uh, we've heard from Mr. Polyev already, uh, but do you anticipate that uh, that the Parliament is going to be receptive to, to this sort of legislation? Because the hue and cry for bail reform, of course, has been heard from coast to coast to coast for quite some time now. Yeah, I, th I think it will find favor despite the initial comments. I mean, Mr. Polyev made his comments uh, rather quickly uh, before the police associations weighed in publicly as they did yesterday before provinces began to weigh in publicly. We have built this uh, package with the provinces since last October. We had started looking at bail uh, before the, the, the tragedy with Constable Pirshala in, in southwestern Ontario in your, in your neck of the woods. Mm -hmm. um, and again, that was tragic and, and you know, all our, our sympathies to, to family and friends as well as other, other police officers who've, who have fallen. Um, but we've been working on this diligently, and the premiers came out with their uh, request in January. We've 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 incorporated that in here. We've done more than that. So we we think we have a we think we have come forward with a piece of legislation that will find favor with the provinces and territories, and we hope that it will find favor on all sides of the House of Commons so that we can get this through quickly. Uh, the other element to this too, and I think you and I had this discussion some months ago, of course, is uh, uh, is the backlog in the judicial system itself. I mean, people that are on bail or even if they're incarcerated uh, are waiting an inordinate amount of time right now. And there's there's been some uh, some speculation here that maybe more judges need to be appointed. There are some gaps, some holes that need to be filled right now. Uh, is your is your department looking at that and and, and moving forward on that that problem? 
Well, we certainly uh, we certainly agree that uh, we don't want to clog up the system with these offenses, and we and that's another another factor that has come in in the kinds of balances that we have struck in here. Uh, I'm working diligently uh, to appoint judges uh, at the Superior Court level in Ontario. That most of the determinations on bail are going to be made by provincially appointed judges and justices of the peace. So there there is a there's another part of that package too that that uh, the provinces will need to look at. Uh, well, we look forward to the debate on this uh, in the days ahead, of course, in the Commons. And uh, we thank you, Minister, for your time today. I know how busy you are from uh, place to place here. I'm trying to explain the legislation and, uh, and, and, and give us a positive point of view as to what's happening here. But thank you so much for this. I'm sure there's more to come. Uh, hopefully, hopefully we get this yeah. and, and we work on other measures. But thank you. I appreciate being with you and, uh, and, and speaking to your listeners. Thank you very much. That's uh, David Lobetti, of course, Justice Minister and Attorney General, talking about the uh, the well legislation that was introduced yesterday. It's all about bail reform and uh, the reverse onus uh, conditions that uh, the minister has talked about. Uh, something that, uh, as he mentioned, has uh, so far anyway, initially uh, gained some support from chiefs of police and others who are, are looking at some of the concerns. Uh, the expected comments from Mr. Polyev and, and from Daniel Smith in Alberta, of course. Uh, I'm wondering if there's more partisan politics involved in that than there is actually analysis of, of what this is going to do. Uh, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but there were just way too many gaps and too many holes in the legislation as it was uh, previous to the, to the introduction of this. Anyway, we'll see what happens as they debate it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We know that uh, that inflation, uh, high interest rates, and, and basically cost of living is just hammering uh, Canadians these days. And uh, some people are looking for that light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, and it doesn't seem to be getting that closer, that much closer to us these days. Uh, as evidenced by the latest Ipsos poll that, uh, that we want to talk about now, uh, 23% of Canadians now rely on charities to meet essential needs. Uh, that's a relatively high number, and it's it's not something that we what can just ignore because I think it's an, a harbinger of, of what may be happening in the next little while to many more Canadians too. I want to bring uh, Daryl Bricker into the conversation. Uh, Daryl is the CEO, of course, of Ipsos Polling, uh, who did the the surveying on this. Uh, Daryl, pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Bill. You know, when we have tough economic times and we, you know, a roller coaster economy that happens from time to time. But when we see an increase in, in, in the use of uh, charitable services, food banks and things of this nature, I think a lot of us just automatically think, well, that's a lot of that number is probably seniors because they're on fixed incomes and, you know, they don't have a, a way to balance uh, the increased costs. What troubles me about the numbers that, that you've uh, been able to find here, Daryl, is uh, this latest uh, conundrum that we're facing covers all demographic groups. Yeah, we did the survey for Canada Helps, and, uh, you know, they asked some questions that normally I don't know that I would ever ask. And and when I saw the answers, uh, there's not many surveys that I do these days where I'm surprised. I was surprised by this one, and and, and unpleasantly so, uh, because it, what it basically does is reveals that a quarter of our fellow citizens are really not just, you know, cutting back on their vacation this year. They're really struggling really struggling. And people who feel that they're going to have to rely on charitable services in order to make it through uh, from day to day over the space of the next year. That, to me, is really troubling. And you're quite correct, Bill, And when you say that it, you know, it covers all demographic groups. Not quite all. Um, yes, there are substantial numbers of people in each demographic category, but there seems to be more of an emphasis among women, particularly among younger women and younger Canadians in general. 
Uh, actually, when it comes to seniors, the Canadian, uh, um, I, I guess, government subsidies and, and, and pensions and other things are actually generous enough that we don't have as many seniors reporting that they've got issues. It's younger people who really feel in, under, under pressure, particularly women, and particularly people who have health issues that they're dealing with. So, for example, mental health or physical health issues that keep prevent them from being able to work maybe in a regular job. They're really under a lot of pressure. One of the other elements, too, and I guess we're trying to connect the dots here, uh, that, that jumped out at me here was uh, those Canadians that, you know, are going to access these things. Uh, one of them, of course, are working multiple part-time jobs. And I remember the stat that came out yeah. last month, I guess it was, uh, Daryl, that, that mentioned, yes, we created uh, thousands of new jobs over the last month, but they're all part-time jobs, uh, which is, you know, that kind of impacts these people too because uh they're trying to make ends meet and how many times have we heard about people that you know get finished job one job at, at noontime and they get on the bus and go across town to their other part-time job uh and that's all to try to pay these bills right now it seems as if that number of people that are in that situation is increasing yeah it does and, and you know when we think about this this kind of thing we think about the most obvious examples like you know people who are in homeless shelters or people who are you know have, have really gone to the extreme end of of, uh, of, of what the situation can be like. But what we're seeing here is a lot of people under a lot of stress, just barely coping, and a lot of silent suffering. And so it's, 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 a, it's a very difficult situation uh, that too many of our fellow citizens are in. And as I said before, I, you know, when I saw the results, it was like, well, you know, I don't see that necessarily in my neighborhood, but why would I? Um, it's, it's something that's happening more, I would say, behind closed doors that may actually start coming out and being more present, and maybe even expressing itself politically. I mean, that's the other thing that we're, we could uh, be dealing with here as well. Well, exactly. And and as we've talked to people from the Daily Bread Food Bank or a food share here in the Hamilton area over the last little while, uh, it, it may well be impacting our neighbors, and we just don't see it. You know, it's not like there's a big box of gro- on their grocery thing that says, hey, no, got this at a food bank. Uh, you don't know who's doing it, and you don't know why they're doing it and how often they're doing it. Uh, it's not the sort of thing that people tend to want to talk about. But, uh, you know, if, in dire circumstances like this, I guess you do what you have to do, don't you? Yeah, and as I said, it's not people we're talking about here saying, you know, I'm going to have to maybe not have steak this week, or maybe I'm going to have to cut off, you know, not order out or skip the dishes or whatever. These are people who are having a quarter of our neighbors are saying that they are having such difficulty that they need to reach out to external help beyond government. That they, you know, it's not it's not enough for them anymore. They've 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 actually got to go out and rely on the kindness of strangers. I guess the follow-up question to this, uh, which is what you guys do for a living, uh, is, is are we are we supplying those services? In other words, is is there enough of an investment uh, in food banks, in some of these other uh, support services, I guess? Because you mentioned mental health and physical illnesses are a major factor here that, that are problematic for people right now. And, of course, the last thing they need is even more stress in their lives. Uh, you know, and we talked to some of those folks in those organizations, Daryl, and invariably they say we're, we're terribly underfunded and we can't handle the workload. Yeah, well, when you're dealing with a quarter of the population, how could you be? And, and, yeah. and, you know, particularly when we're dealing with a cost of living situation in this country, which means that if people had disposable income that they were putting into charities, they're not doing that anymore to the same extent. I mean, that would be another great study. You know, what's, what's happening with people's charitable giving? And I'm sure that, uh, uh, you know, even though demand has been going up, the actual supply 
uh, the money that uh, that people uh, would previously, in better times, be contributing to charities is probably not as strong as it was before either. So it's it's you know they get the the charities are getting it from both ends. They're you know the 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 fuel that they need, which is the money from uh, from charitable givers, is is likely going down, and the uh, and the demand from their constituencies is going up. So yeah, exactly. it's, it's it's a very difficult time to be in this sector. And, you know, um, uh, as I said before, the way that Canadians tend to deal with this, these types of situations, is they deal with them politically. So if, if you're in government uh, and, and you're looking at what um, numbers like this suggest about the, the difficulties that, uh, that your constituents, and we're moving beyond Canadians here now to constituents, are, are going through, uh, it's time to wake up, folks. Absolutely, it is. Uh, always great to get uh, a snapshot as to where we are on this, uh, and that's uh, the, the great work that you guys do at Ipsos. Daryl, thanks for uh, the work, and thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, Bill. Take care. Daryl Berker, uh, CEO of Ipsos. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A new piece of legislation that was passed uh, that didn't get a whole lot of discussion because there's other things going on, like foreign interference, I suppose, that uh, seem to be on the minds of, of our, our federal politicians. But this bill aims to enshrine a francophone immigration program into law, and it's heading to the Senate now after clearing the House of Commons. Uh, official language is Minister Jeanette Pettipa-Taylor says it's Bill C-13 is what she calls a historic legislation that recognizes the decline of French here in Canada. So through this uh, modernization, we're talking about putting in place an immigration policy with indicators and targets to make sure that we can reverse that decline. And secondly as well, we also want to make sure that we are there to um, help support official language minority communities. But what about some of the other ramifications and fallout from this? Uh, I don't know that everybody read the bill and, and thought this thing through. Uh, our next guest writes about this. Uh, Tasha Carradine is a principal at Navigator and author of The Right Path, a fascinating book about the uh, small C conservative movement here in this country. It's a great read if uh, now you're heading into summertime and you've got some time to do some of this stuff. Anyway, Tasha joins us to talk about a piece that she wrote about uh, Bill C-13. Uh, first of all, Tasha, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for the time today. Oh, well, thank you, Bill. Great to be here. As you mentioned in the piece here, this this act, this Bill C-13, is really an, kind of an amended uh, Official Languages Act. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know how well attention the, the government was on this, but this thing seemed to pass. It received uh, p- uh, support from all political parties, with one notable exception, by the way. Actually, one of the, the liberals uh, in, in the caucus actually voted against this, didn't they? Yeah, that was Anthony House, father of uh, Mount Royal in Quebec, in Montreal, because his concern is very specific to the Anglophone community in Quebec, which feels that this could be used actually to circumvent their rights as opposed to guarantee them, which is what it's supposed to do. So that was his reason. Um, there are other reasons to, to, to oppose it, though, as, as well, some of the changes in it, because they affect businesses, they affect uh, people's choices in terms of professions and opportunities and things that I think will will were not anticipated or were glossed over because of political reasons, which we can get into. Well, let's do that. I want to get into those political reasons because you know, the, the historical reference you use in the piece here is that uh, we kind of been through this, done that before, haven't we? I mean, always a, there's a pushback and, and there was a, a, a hue and cry in some parts of the country right now saying, I'm being discriminated against because I, I don't speak French. I can't get that job. They won't even give me an interview for that job. I'm imminently qualified for it. And it's not happening. Are we, are we going to get a repeat of that now? 
Well, yeah, let's let's um, let's back up one sec to see what the bill does. And some things it does yeah. well and some things it does not. The goal of uh, increasing francophone immigration is a good one. Um, it is, you know, that right now it's 3.6%. They want to boost it to 4.4. So it's a significant increase in terms of the number of people who would be speaking French. And there's a good reason for that, because actually right now there are a lot of jobs that require bilingualism and many of them in the private sector. They're not um, government jobs and they can't find people to fill them. Um, they're alone. There are 10,000, 10,000 immersion teachers across the country, positions that are unfilled right now. It is a, a crying need. So to have people who can fill these positions is important. And if we don't have them domestically, then, you know, immigration is definitely one way to do that. But what the bill also does is it imposes requirements on federally regulated businesses similar to those that are imposed on businesses on all businesses in the province of Quebec for France what's called francisization um, and that is a problem because to your point it means that some people will now be excluded from positions that otherwise did not necessarily require French but if they are anglophone and cannot work in a language then or if you're francophone and you can only work in that language you can demand that the business accommodate you essentially um, which where numbers warrant is, is totally fine. But in some communities, it's going to impose great obligations on businesses. And we know what happens when that happens. Businesses spend more money on those things. They hire fewer people. They create fewer jobs. So that is the concern. The business community in Quebec didn't like it there. And I think the rest of the country is also going to have a bit of a wake-up call when this starts to have its effect. Uh, did, did you get the sense that, that they actually even understood what the ramifications of this actually could be? Apparently, House Father certainly did. Uh, but, yeah. but some of the other ones here who just, uh, you know, like like Sheep decided, yeah, this is great for bilingualism. Let's do this. Uh, they don't have much of a sense of history then, do they, as soon as something like this comes along? Well, no, and I think it is a concern because we don't want to see a repeat of the French-English language wars. I lived them. I'm a, you know, a kid of the 70s, and I remember when this was the biggest issue going was, you know, French-English tensions in this country. We had the 95 referendum in particular where you had Canadians coming to Quebec to say, hey, love you, please stay. I mean, this it, it set our country back in terms of dealing with other socioeconomic issues, uh, political issues millions of issues that got ignored because we were very focused on just keeping the country together because of these tensions. So exacerbating them is in nobody's interest. Um, I think that, you know, this, this bill did not have to go this far. The reason it did, it incorporates provisions of, of another piece of legislation called Bill 96, which is a bill in Quebec, like I said, that imposes uh, francisization requirements on businesses. It lifts verbatim some chunks of that of that bill and incorporates them. Um, and the result, the effect of that is that you're basically transposing the language issue out of Quebec to the rest of the country. Again, this is not a good idea. It was done for political reasons. All the parties supported it because, let's face it, Premier Francois Legault is incredibly popular. Everyone wants votes in Quebec in the next election. And nobody wanted to rock the boat on this. I think they, they're they just kicking the can down the road, assuming it's, <clears throat> excuse me, not going to have a huge impact. But in fact, it will. And there's statistics to show that. Well, especially, I know there's the aspect of what's going to go on in, in Quebec, certainly. But but what about francophones in other parts of the country? I mean, you know, places like Manitoba, certainly uh, the maritime provinces and, and northern Ontario uh, have, have a number of people that are bilingual and French speaking right now who may be applauding this sort of thing. But there's going to be other people in this community that feel as if they're going to be, well, in some people's minds, second class citizens now because they, they only speak one language. 
Yeah, I think, and I think again, um, there are people who will definitely applaud it. And I think the goal of increasing Francophone immigration outside of Quebec is a very laudable one. Like I said, there's actually a demand for this. There's a demand for people in Toronto, one in 10 jobs actually requires bilingualism because it's things like sales, things like call centers, things um, like management. I mean, they're, 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 it's not just, you know, it's not just Francophone companies or companies that deal with Quebec. It's companies that do business around the world. So it's actually a premium. If you're, if you're um, bilingual, you can get a 10 to 30% premium on your salary for many jobs right now in this country. So this is the problem is we can't find enough people. So bringing them in makes sense, but creating more jobs of this nature doesn't make sense. There are a lot of opportunities that Francophones can access. It's not for lack of opportunity, really. Um, I think this is really a very political decision and people haven't thought it through. Did they talk numbers though, Tasha, when they're having the discussion such as it was in this debate? Because you mentioned them uh, in, in the piece that you wrote here. Uh, parliamentary budget officer estimates that the cost of compliance for businesses could reach about $240 million. Uh, although yeah. I guess, as you as you also mentioned, they were talking about sixteen million dollars uh, in the budget. So the, there's a disparity there, as there usually is in <laughs> government numbers of reality, isn't there? Yeah, the budget um, in 22-23, the anticipation of this bill uh, was allocated sixteen million dollars. Um, however, the parliamentary budget officer says the cost of compliance for businesses will be $240 million. That's just to the sort of capital upfront investment in this, if you will, to create what's called Francisization programs and respect language laws. Going forward after that, there are more numbers, $20 million a year anticipated just to keep them up. Because once you have, you know, installed a bilingualism officer in your company or you have programs, you you have to keep them going. So you need HR expenses, you need, uh, you know, uh, hours of work, uh, materials, whatever is necessary. There's also going to be the reality that um, the official languages commissioner will have powers to impose financial penalties up to $25,000 if you don't respect the law. They will monitor federal workplaces to make sure they're fully bilingual. That brings to mind the whole language police in Quebec, which was a very, you know, it's a very negative thing. Um, In Quebec, there's even, there's been jokes and memes made about, you know, restaurants that have menus that were in English and the language police came in and said, you have to change all the menus because they're in English. In some cases, they were in Italian. They weren't in French. Like this kind of ridiculous stuff that made news around the world, frankly, um, and does not give a, you know, doesn't give a positive impression of the business climate in Quebec to the rest of the world. We don't want that for Canada. We don't want people. And this is this is the issue that Quebec businesses raise, especially in the tech sector. They wrote to the, pr- the premier and said, what you're doing with this is you are basically shutting the door on a lot of talent that will not come here now because they fear that they will not be able to meet the French standards. They will not be able to work in this environment. They don't want this extra layer of complication. So what you're going to do is you're going to reduce the talent pool. You're going to reduce our ability to thrive, make money, compete in the world. That's the fear is for, for the rest of Canada to, to do this as well. Are you going to then reduce the talent as opposed to increasing immigration, increasing people who want to come here with their skills? You're going to shut people out. It's, it's kind of a backwards way of approaching it. Well, exactly, and uh, and you know, in case the the news didn't make it up to Ottawa, I mean, you know, we're we're still in an economic quandary in this country right now. The tech sector, so many other sectors, are trying to get back on their feet after uh, the last three or four years of hell for an awful lot of them these days. Is this really the kind of pressure that they need to stack on top of what they're already dealing with? Uh, no, I don't think so. And that's, again, I think the timing of it, initially this bill, there's been two iterations of this bill. Um, one died before the last election. It was revived. 
So it was it was a thought before. I mean, it goes back to 2019 um, before the pandemic was a thing. And I think that, yes, things should be timed, obviously, to what the economy can stand. And right now, you know, uh, businesses are having trouble getting back on their feet. Inflation even went up this quarter. So I think, you know, the government should should take this into account. But again, politically, no one wants to lose support in Quebec. Um, it's, you know, the next election could be well be decided there. If if the liberals manage mm-hmm. to hold on to their seats or increase them, it increases their chances. The conservatives would love to unseat the Bloc Québécois. Um, you know, on it goes. So that's why this just sort of passed without a whimper. You talked about some of the political ramifications, and uh, in, in in the piece you uh, referenced our, our, our friend John Iverson, who wrote about this in the, uh, a discussion he had with uh, retired federal judge uh, Peter Annis, uh, who says Canada can find itself in, in a Belgian relationship with two official languages. And he talks about hostility from the West, and, and that kind of rekindled some memories, Tasha, from the debate you and I were just talking about uh, when you, back in the 70s. Uh, where there was some outright animosity in some of the Western provinces that they were being forced into bilingualism. Uh, and they didn't just hate uh, Trudeau Sr. for that. I mean, they hated government. Uh, you know, there's still talk of separation in some of those provinces right now. Is this going to just throw gasoline onto that fire? Um, it could. I hope it doesn't. But yes, there's that possibility. There's, I mean, the West is resentful on many fronts, um, environmental policies, carbon taxes, uh, demonization of the oil industry. And, you know, that happened also under Trudeau Sr., um, the, the notion that we were going to, you know, create the national energy policy and sell Alberta's oil at a discount to the rest of the country. And there was a real sense that, of being taken advantage of. So, and there's a lot of still anti-Quebec hostility. I mean, you know, I was in Calgary uh, last year for the leadership as it was going on. And I remember someone there, you were, you know, they were booing Josh Ray. Okay. So I told someone to sit down and stop because, you know, give him a fair chance to speak. I wasn't booing Pierre Polyev. I would never do that. It's, it's rude. And he said to me, you know what? Um, he should go back to Quebec and you should go back to Toronto. <laughs> and so I was like, really? I should go back to Toronto. Thanks a lot. Like there's, there's still among some people, an anti-Eastern anti-Quebec bias and this gentleman was older, he'd remember the same stuff you're talking about. You don't want to rekindle that. You really don't. We need to bring the country together right now as opposed to dividing. And this bill does not help that. Well, exactly. And as you say, there's an argument to be made that there is already an East-West political divide here uh, because of some of the small C conservative policies or extremist policies and some of the elements in that party right now, as opposed to some of the well, shall we say the Jean Charest, Brian Mulroney types of conservatives. Uh, so that's already there. And a language issue like this is, is that seems to me anyway, the potential for driving even a, a deeper wedge into that. Yeah. And the language issue, um, I mean, if you go to Quebec, it's a very real thing for Francophones there. They are concerned about the French language. One in 10 Quebecers now speaks English at home. And French has been declining since 2001, both in the workplace and at home. So there is a concern about protecting the French language within Quebec. Um, there's also the fact that it has declined across country, uh, across the country in terms of representation. Um, and so I think that, you know, that there is a genuine need to protect the French language. We are a bilingual country, which gives us huge advantages in the world. Mm-hmm. Yes. But it's not that every single citizen is going to be fully bilingual. It's it, That is a dream. It would be lovely. But realistically, People are not going to be speaking French if they are in a place where it is not warranted, just like they won't speak English in places where everyone speaks French. So encouraging, yes, like I said, increasing the labor force to meet the demand through immigration and maintaining representation of Francophone communities 100%. But imposing this 
obligation on business at this time or in general and creating animosity? No. So, you know, they missed the sweet spot on this one and went too far. Well, we'll see what the folks in the uh, the Senate discuss uh, when it uh, gets onto their plates in just a couple of days. Uh, great piece, anyway. They can go and check it out uh, on the uh, the National Post webpage and, uh, and and get the details on the article as well. Tasha, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Take care. Tasha Kirin, principal at Navigator and author of uh, The Right Path and, and author of this piece that we just talked about in the National Post. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.